Sunday school this morning, and we'll commence in prayer. We'll seek the Lord as we come together this morning. <coughs> Gracious God and our eternal Father in heaven, we give thee thanks we can come into thy presence. We give thee thanks we can lift our voices to thee. We can praise thee, and we can come to worship thee this day. And Father, as we spend in this blessed time in thy house, we pray that thou would be with us and teach us and instruct us. Do you remember the children downstairs? We pray thou would bless them also. Bless the teachers as thy word is taught. And Father, may thy name be glorified this day through the teaching of thy precious word. We do remember the needs we have. Remember the needs of this day, the needs of our services. May we know the outpouring of thy Spirit in a mighty way. And Father, be with us, thy people, this year as we come to worship thee on the first Lord's Day of 2024. Bless us to our souls, good we ask. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to turn in the Word of God to two verses of Scripture. Firstly, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And in Matthew 16, we have a somewhat controversial passage of Scripture, one that has caused debate and division over the centuries. And we have a chapter that is in contention uh, between those of a Reformed Protestant persuasion, uh, those of a Roman Catholic persuasion, uh, regarding who the church is founded upon. And here uh, we have uh, the Savior speaking to Simon Peter, and uh, verse 18 says that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that, of course, we're not dealing with that this morning. It is our perspective that uh, regarding the different Greek words that are used, that the Savior is speaking about himself. Uh, he's not speaking about Peter as being the rock upon which the church is built. But it is verse 16 I want to draw your attention to. And verse 16 is in answer to what we see in verse 15. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There we have a confession, a confession of faith by Peter as to who he believed his Savior is. And then if we move to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have another statement of belief. And there the Word of God says, and without controversy, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of these verses and these examples of a creed and confession within the Word of God. And of course, our subject this morning, as you can see in the notes, is creeds and confessions. I want to move into Arianism 
and dealing with the Council of Nicaea, but I thought it might be good uh, to deal with creeds and confessions uh, now before we move into that, uh, because one of the great historic creeds of the early Christian church uh, was formed at the Council of Nicaea in opposition to the heresy of Arianism. And so, we're going to consider creeds and confessions. We did preach on this at the time of the Reformation, and so uh, something of what we say may be familiar, and I think the point that we're considering this morning was one of those points from that sermon, uh, but uh, there's a lot more material, a bit of an expansion uh, regarding uh, what we are saying uh, today, and therefore we're spending this time this morning looking at that first point. Uh, there's other points we'll come to uh, later on as we move through this consideration a bit more in depth uh, than we did back in October. Uh, but it is good to consider creeds and confessions. It is something today that is debated, and uh, we have said something of that in the past. We'll say something of that in the present as well. Uh, but the, he, the church historian J.N.D. Kelly wrote, for hundreds of years, Christians have been accustomed to understand by the word creed a fixed formula summarizing the essential articles of their religion and enjoying the sanction of ecclesiastical authority. And what he means by that is that the understanding in Christianity of that word creed, it means something that is fixed, a statement that tells us what we believe, summarizes the truth of God as we see in Scripture, teaches us something of that truth, and of course, uh, that important phrase at the end of his quote, enjoying the sanction of ecclesiastical authority. In other words, the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, men of faith and godliness who were ordained and called by God, and made these statements, composed these statements so the church could easily see what it believed and teach that and preach that uh, to the people. And so it is not a creed that was written by a man in the sense of a man one day just had an idea to write a creed. It was the church coming together and the church deciding and the church seeing the need for such a creed. And the history of Christ's church then is not merely a history of people and dates and events, but it is a history that includes theological debates and the development and the proclamation of biblical doctrine. And when we think of that, we can think of the subject of historical theology, and we know what theology is, studying the great truths and doctrines of God's Word. We know what history is, or at least in our ninth week, we should know what history is if we didn't know before that. History is studying the events and people and dates, but when we think of church history, we're studying that in regard to the church and what took place and how it affects us today. But historical theology takes the history and theology together, and we look at the history of doctrine. How did these doctrines develop? How did the church form its creeds? How did the events at Nicaea lead to the Nicene Creed and the development of that? and the application of that through church history. And so that is a fascinating subject in itself, historical theology, and we can apply that to how the church understood justification by faith, how they understood it in the early church, 
how they understood it uh, during the rise of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Protestant Reformation as it came to the forefront again, how it is understood and how it is understood today, how it has developed. And so, as I've said before, looking at church history, we're blending some of these things uh, together. But the church has organized councils and synods and assemblies that have the authority to deal with the doctrinal issues of their time and to systematize the teaching of Scripture on these particular matters. And as a confessional church, we believe in the importance of believing, firstly, believing our own confessional documents, which are the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the children in the Sunday school learn from the Shorter Catechism, um, later on once they move from the Child's Catechism, and then uh, the Larger Catechism. Well, maybe that's for the adult Sunday school, I don't know. Uh, but back uh, many years ago when the Shorter Catechism was written, uh, the idea was for those who were younger, they would progress to the Larger Catechism. They, <coughs> they would then progress to the Confession of Faith in learning and studying and memorizing. Uh, but the larger catechism in many uh, churches today is not as influential as it once was, but it really is an expansion upon the truths found in the shorter catechism. And these documents are held by us, and they date back to the 1640s. They contain a systematic presentation of what we as a church believe the Bible teaches. But it should be noted that a confession or a creed must be in subjection to the Word of God. We don't take our confession of faith and say, well, we're a confessional church. The confession comes first, then the Bible. No. The Bible comes first, and the confession of faith is in subjection to the Word of God. And therefore, our confession is defined as a subordinate standard. It is subordinate to the Word of God. The confession of faith can't teach anything, can't instruct on any uh, doctrinal issue without the authority of God's Word and without God's Word setting the standard for it. And today there are many attacks upon the confessional church, and it is claimed that these churches have set Scripture aside for the commandments of men and for the ideas and the doctrine of men, but that is not true, as the confessional standard must always be subordinate to the Word of God. Now, in some places that hasn't happened. In some places that has been set aside. Uh, but if we are truly a confessional church, then our standards will be subordinate to Scripture and will teach the Word of God fully and truthfully. A study of church history informs us that confessional standards are necessary for the existence of the church and for the well-being of the church of Christ. Creeds and confessions then comprise a clear standard of truth inasmuch as that creed or confession is agreeable to the Word of God. It is not a man-made statement of truth, but a statement of truth that is founded and agreeable to the Word of God. And that is important, and we need to understand that. The creeds and confessions we have summarize Scripture, and we hold to it as a summary of what the Word of God teaches. If I were to ask you, what is justification? And you begin to explain justification, and I says, no, stop. 
start at Genesis, work through Genesis, work through the Word of God, and show me what justification is. It would take you some time. It would be beneficial, but it would take you some time to move through the Word of God and to come to Romans and uh, tell us what Paul says about justification. The just shall live by faith and the importance of this truth. But our confessional documents simply state what justification is. It is not a replacement for the Word of God, but it is a summary of what the Bible teaches on that truth. And it is easy and beneficial for us to then understand and learn. But in the Reformed Church then, creeds and confessions have played a large role in defining what the church believes, what it teaches, what it practices. There are many independent churches today that if you go on their website, and I've often come across a church or someone has said to me they attend this church, or I've heard uh, of this church maybe on social media, I thought, I wonder, I wonder what they believe. And I go on and I look at their statement of faith, and I can't find a statement of faith. I can't find where they set out in a very brief summary what they teach. And today, if we think of uh, tongues and the spiritual gifts uh, that many Pentecostal and charismatic churches practice, well, to find out if a church is inclined that way, you go onto the website, you look at their statement of faith, and at some point when they deal with the Spirit and the life of the church, they will say about practicing the spiritual gifts. And it's there. It's black and white. It's easy to see. You don't need to go to that church to find out whether they talk in tongues or not. It's on the website, but then some churches do not do that. And there are churches then that believe that doctrine divides. Therefore, they don't have a clear man-written statement of doctrine, as they would say, and they simply hold to the Bible. We hold to the Bible, but we summarize in our confession what the Bible teaches but they hold to the Bible. And therefore, there is no set, no set form of doctrine or creed or confession that they follow. It's confusing, and it's hard to understand what they actually believe. And the confessional church will be criticized, and criticized because doctrine divides, and therefore having a confessional statement divides. And therefore, Holding your ministers and elders to a confessional statement divides. And learning that statement and memorizing that statement and believing and practicing that statement, it divides. Sure, we're all the body of Christ, they say. Come together and let us worship God and not worry about whether we believe in the doctrines of grace or not or what our view on justification is or what our view on evangelism is. It doesn't matter. Let's all come together. And you have all sorts of people believing all sorts of things because there's no clear standard of framework what they are supposed to believe. And when we come to the Council of Nicaea, we see the issues regarding Christ and the divinity of Christ. And what did they do? They set a statement. This is what we believe the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything outside of that is heresy, and it's founded upon Scripture. Anything outside of that is unacceptable, unacceptable. And of course, if I were to say this morning that if you're seeking salvation, well, you can find it through works. Come to church, pay your tithe, be a good person. You can be saved that way. And if I said I truly believe that and I preach that, 
there would be those here who would call me to the side and say, well, they probably would say, have you lost your mind? Uh, but they would say, well, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what you publicly confess to believe and teach in this congregation, because it goes against the Word of God, and it also goes against the confessional document that you said you believe, and you would preach, and you would hold to, and that this church holds to. And therefore, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's clear. It's written. And there is a statement of faith that we are to follow. But it is not biblical doctrine that divides. It's error and heresy and rejection of that doctrine that divides. If I were to say salvation is by works, and someone stood up and said, you're wrong, you're teaching heresy, you're teaching false doctrine, who's causing the division, the person for standing up or the preacher for saying that which is wrong? And we know it is the preacher who said something wrong. It is not true doctrine that divides. True doctrine brings us together. It unites us. Our confessional statements unite us under the common truths that we find in the Word of God. And so, creeds and confessions are important. They're important, as we'll see later on, for dealing with heresy and dealing with error within the church of Christ. We have an example of that, Acts chapter 15, whenever there were those in the church who said that, you know, you need to be circumcised to be saved. And the council of Jerusalem was called, and they decided and made the decision that the biblical viewpoint was that it was only Christ, justification through Christ alone. And they sent out the decrees to all the churches, telling the church, this is what you must believe, and this is what you must preach. And what happened? There was blessing. There was blessing, but there was a decision made. There was a confession of the truth, and it was held to. It was held to, and it dealt with the error. And so, moving on this morning, creeds and confessions then is our theme, and creeds and confessions have a biblical foundation. <coughs> and this is vital because it must be acknowledged that the developing, the believing, and practicing of confessional standards can be traced back to the Scriptures. Men will cry out, no creed but the Bible. But yet, Scripture teaches us that confessional expressions of our faith are important, and they are biblical. We read some of those this morning. J.V. Fesco, John Fesco, American theologian, said that the Bible teaches that the church create its own confessions of faith in order to pass on to future generations the faith once delivered to the saints. And that is important. He is teaching here, he believes that the Bible teaches that the church create its own confessions of faith in order to pass on to future generations the faith once delivered to the saints. We see that. We see that through the Westminster Shorter Catechism being taught to the new generation. I remember when I was young, maybe in nine years of age, eight, nine years of age, I began to learn the Shorter Catechism. And I remember, I maybe said this before, I went to college and in 2009, and that was probably about eight years after reciting all 107 questions in the Shorter Catechism. Apart from uh, putting a question or two into a sermon, I hadn't really studied or looked over it much over those past eight years. 
I had looked over the Confession of Faith, etc., going into college and the Catechism again, uh, but I had spent much time on it when I was in my early teens. And so I went into college, and our very first theology exam, we had to memorize about 10 to 12 catechisms from the Shorter Catechism, from question one on to about question 12 or so. And I remember the night before the exam, I went out of my room downstairs to the student's kitchen, made a cup of coffee, and as that coffee was being made, I began to do my catechisms, hadn't looked at them until that point, and I drunk my coffee, didn't take very long. When I went upstairs again, I knew my catechisms, and I knew them well, and there was a space, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes, and that was enough, not because I'm a genius, but because I had learned them when I was young. So I wasn't learning them again in the kitchen. I was only really refreshing my mind. And I'd been over those catechisms probably about three to four times in my youth. I'd moved through a few churches as well. And so uh, I had started and I had learned the first few catechisms. Then we moved churches and I started again in the class I was in. And then I started again and then I memorized them all together. And so it was really just coming back to me, but it shows the importance of learning them when you're young. And this is important because Fesco says this, the church creates these confessions to pass on to future generations the faith once delivered to the saints. And if we were to take all the proof texts of the catechism and learn them all together, how much learning that would be for our children. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And maybe some of you know that. But what if I said you, you're not to learn that? You're to learn all the verses that are used to prove that statement. And some do learn those verses. I never did, but some do. But you just learned those verses. That's a lot of learning and bringing together. But the confessional statement simply expresses it. And then, of course, you can go and you can look at the proof texts themselves that prove that point. It is beneficial to future generations. Uh, I remember, maybe we said this in October, I'm not sure, uh, but I remember one time putting into a sermon an illustration. There was a, there was a young girl, and uh, her father was being visited by a prominent preacher, and there was a particular subject they were talking about and explaining. And the father of the home asked his daughter the question, I don't know what the doctrine was, what is repentance, what is adoption, what is justification, whatever it was. And he said to her, what, what is this doctrine? And she repeated very quickly the shorter catechism answer. And the visiting preacher was impressed uh, by uh, that she knew how to explain and simply explain and understand what that doctrine is all about. And so, uh, there's a great benefit, and uh, we see that, uh, firstly, in the notes, Scripture teaches us to instruct future generations. <laughs> Scripture teaches us to instruct future generations. And we've seen something of this already, that uh, they are a blessing. Creeds and confessions are a blessing to the next generation. Of course, they don't save, uh, but they make wise unto salvation in the sense that we could use those words in Timothy uh, the Word of God makes wise unto salvation, uh, but there must be faith. 
Exodus chapter 13 and uh, the verse 14. <coughs> and here we read, And it shall come, and it shall be, when thy son asketh thee in the time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage? And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore will I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth to the matrix, being meals, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thine eyes, for by strength of hand that the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt." And here there's a reminder, we could go to many other scriptures as well. Some we'll mention, I think, in the sermon this morning about remembering the days of old, remembering what God had done and the importance of then teaching and instructing the generation that comes in the truth of God. Scripture teaches us to instruct future generations. And in Exodus chapter 13, it is noted for that first time that Israel is to teach and instruct the next generation in the importance of the Passover feast. There are traditions, not in the Roman Catholic sense, and customs that are practiced by God's people. And children will naturally inquire of their parents as to why these things are practiced. Why do we go to church? Why do we pray? Why do we read the Word of God? Why do we do these things? And so there is an inquiry, and there is, in response to that, a repetition and an explanation of the truth of God. And the knowledge and the beliefs and practices regarding the Passover and its wonderful meaning, and of course that points to the Savior's redemptive work, these things are to be passed down to the next generation. And one of the great means of that is to pass it on to future generations by the use of creeds and confessions and catechisms as well. Confession, catechism, creeds. And so there is a great importance to teach the next generation. We could spend all our time and all our efforts serving the Lord, preaching the Word, and ignore the next generation, and ignore the children, and ignore the young people. And when it comes to 20, 30 years down the line, there is no next generation. There is no next generation. And we see that in the book of Judges. And so, a great use of creeds and confessions is to instruct future generations. But Scripture also teaches us to hear and hearken to the Word of God, to hear and hearken to the Word of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see that. We'll turn to that just for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the verse number 4, says, Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel. And then if we move to Deuteronomy chapter 26, <coughs> Deuteronomy 26, and the verses 1 to 11, and there is a setting forth here in these words of what the Lord has done. It speaks of the Egyptians, verse 6, but verse 8, And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with 
great terribleness and with signs and wonders. And He hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the firstfruits of the land, which Thou, O Lord, hast given me, and Thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thy house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. And there is to be uh, this remembrance of what God has done, this listening uh, to the Word of God in remembrance. And so we take those two texts together, hear the Word of God, and then this instruction to, to remember and to rejoice and to worship the Lord because of what He has done. And so we are to hear and hearken to the Word of God. We are to remember what He has done. We are to remember who He is. And these verses uh, record for us who the Lord is. And there is an application here. They were to act upon it. They were to love the Lord their God. And the truth of God, in whatever form it takes, always requires a response from us. The truth is God's revealed and divinely inspired Word. Because it is true, because of its spiritual and eternal emphasis, then we must respond to it. We cannot ignore it. And we come face to face with the truth of God, and it demands a reaction from us. Coming face to face with our sin and our misery and the fact that we will stand before a righteous and holy God demands a reaction from us, a reaction of repentance, a reaction of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As God's people hearing His truth demands a reaction from us of obedience and love toward Him. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that is four words in the original Hebrew text. It is said that it was recited by the Jews in their faith and belief in God as a daily prayer alongside some other verses. It is said that some in Israel took these commandments literally then, and they took small leather pouches containing the commandments of the Lord. They tied them to their heads, those frontlets, keeping the Word of God, as it were, before them. But the teaching of the Lord here is for Israel to remember and to never forget the law of God, to remember the commandments of the Lord. We would see that. We won't turn to Deuteronomy 11 and Numbers 15, but we would see that they're not to forget the law of God. As one commentator said, nevertheless, the point of the confession was to cement Israel's collective conviction that Jehovah was to be the sole object of the adoration, affection, and allegiance. And there was to be a profession of faith within Israel they were to hear and hearken to the Word of God, and they were to obey the command of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And uh, the text goes on there. And so there is to be a hearkening to the Word of God, a hearkening to the Word of God, a believing in the Word of God. And we see this confession, we see this creed, we see this commitment to the Lord. And we ourselves are to hearken to that. And creeds and confessions help us to do that in systematizing what the Scriptures teach. And then we see that Scripture shows us that the Apostle Paul wrote confessional statements. The Apostle Paul wrote confessional statements. If we turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, the verse 15, 
We won't turn to all these passages, and we did read uh, from Timothy earlier as well, and another example of one of the Apostle Paul's confessional statements. But 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. A confession by Paul, statement of doctrine, a statement of what he believed. And so in the New Testament, we have examples of confessional statements. The Scripture proves, uh, or what is known as five trustworthy statements made by the Apostle Paul that testify to doctrines about Christ. We have those verses in the Scriptural proof. And these statements refer to prominent truths in the teaching of Christ. And of course, if we were to say what Paul says here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, well, the Lord Jesus Christ said that and taught that. He came to save. He came to redeem. And the teaching of Christ is repeated or reinstated by the apostle as a means of instructing his church. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Uh, there's an indication here of Paul's desire for good church order in the churches that have been established. If we move to 1 Timothy 4 and the verses 7 to 9, uh, the apostle says there, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Uh, there is a biblical position then of rejecting silly and immature ideas for the truth of God. And these remarks by the apostle, if we uh, turn to Luke's gospel and the chapter 18, and the verse uh, 29, and the Savior says, and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. And the Savior is emphasizing the eternal reward to those who renounce temporal things for the sake of Christ. And Paul is emphasizing that. Reject the silly ideas. Reject the silly truth, or the silly untruths, we should say, those immature philosophies of man, for the truth of God. Fesco writes, the early church took this teaching, they generalized it, and produced a trustworthy saying about godliness, about godliness. If we turn to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 in the verse 11, 2 Timothy chapter 2, in the verse 11, the apostle says, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And these words find their foundation in words of the Savior. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And these words teach the church to endure and persevere through suffering and persecution. It's a statement of truth that has a practical application in the encouragement of the truth. And so the Apostle Paul took aspects of truth revealed by Christ. He wrote it into his epistles and emphasized the truthfulness of these statements by Christ. And he referred to this, Fesco referred to this as revelation, reflection, and repetition, or a revelation, reflection, repetition loop, which because of revelation ceasing no longer exists, but 
he states, nevertheless, the fact that the Revelation confession pattern has precedence both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament confirms that with appropriate scriptural safeguards, there is a biblical warrant for the church to create and maintain confessions of faith. And so, words were revealed by Christ, doctrines and truths revealed, and they were reflected upon and written down by, say, the Apostle Paul, and they've been repeated. And that is really when we think of confessions. Those confessions go into the Word of God. They take the truths of the Word of God. They reflect upon them. They write them down. And those truths are repeated. There's a great repetition of them. And so, the Apostle Paul wrote confessional statements. And that is an evidence that creeds and confessions are biblical. And then we see Scripture teaches that the faith and the truth have been delivered to the church. Scripture teaches that the faith and the truth have been delivered to the church. And of course, this is obvious, but Scripture does not teach that the faith and the truth have been delivered to one individual or another individual or some specific character in history, but rather it's been delivered to the church. In Jude and the verse 3, uh, the writer here, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, he writes, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The main purpose of the epistle of Jude is to refute the false teachers that were rising within the church. Their aim was to corrupt the truth of God. We see that in verse 4, certain men creeping in on a words. And Jude distinguishes the truth from false doctrine in emphasizing the faith that was once delivered. And we see that, verse number 3, we should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered, the faith. And the faith is what the church is supposed to believe. And this is a reference to the content of that faith rather than merely the faith by which it is practiced and believed. We could say, we believed in Christ through faith. I was saved through faith. I believed in Christ who died for me because of faith. And that's a means by which we are saved. But what Jude is speaking about here is the faith which was once delivered. He's talking about what we're supposed to believe. He's talking about the content of that faith the belief that we have, what we see that faith as. And so, in this context, the faith includes everything that the church must believe, practice, and teach. And so, what is Jude doing? He's affirming that there is an existence, if we had any doubt, which we don't, but he's affirming the existence of a message, of a truth, of doctrines that the church must preach in contrast to false teachers and the doctrines of men. He recognizes that this message, all of its knowledge and all of its truth, has been delivered or handed over to the church. It was not a faith that was discovered or invented by the church, but rather it has been passed down to them by God. It was delivered to them. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, the apostle said. They have the truth. The church has the truth of God to teach and to instruct. And so, there is a very clear content to what that faith is, and it's seen in the Word of God. 
And of course, the church having that faith, the church having that truth, it is set forth in statements that support what the Bible teaches, statements that show forth what the church believes. And so, biblical confessions remind the believer of God's past works, they remind us of who He is, while looking forward and seeking to instruct the future generations. And this faith, as noticed by Jude, is to be preserved in the present time and in the future. And therefore, creeds and confessions provide a backbone of gospel truth that is firmly founded upon the Word of God. And we see that. We see that confessions and creeds are found in Scripture. We see that our own confession is founded in Scripture. Other churches have confessions <coughs> that may differ a little on some minor points, but there are many good Reformed confessions as well. The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, for example, is a very good uh, confession of faith. And I, I remember uh, visiting here in 2017, the former minister here, uh, Reverend Gallagher, mentioned uh, to me the uh, Heidelberg Catechism and how he had been reading it and what a blessing it was and the personal aspect of it, uh, asking questions that applied uh, to us you know, what is our hope, etc., asking the question for us to then go and describe our faith. And so, there are many good creeds and confessions of a Reformed nature that teach the truth of God, and they provide that backbone, as it were, of gospel truth. They provide the church something to use in teaching the truth, not a replacement for the Word of God, but complementary to Scripture and founded upon Scripture and subordinate to Scripture, but very much of great benefit to the church of Christ. We can think of the Reformed faith and Martin Luther. We can think of John Knox. And 1560, the Scots Confession was written and penned. What the Scottish church believed, that's really what this confession was what the Reformed Protestant church in Scotland believed in comparison to what had been believed by the Roman Catholic Church. What were the differences? What did they now believe? What did they preach? And of course, there was a confessional statement that stated many of those things in opposition to false doctrine. And confessional statements were in abundance at the time of the Reformation as well. The Scots Confession, there were the Lutheran Confessions, the Westminster Confession in the 1640s, in that second period of Reformation, we could say the Puritan period, all coming out of, I suppose, disunity and division and standing against the doctrines of the day. And when we think of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there were issues with the king. Uh, during the time the confession was being uh, written, uh, King Charles, uh, King Charles I, uh, lost his head in the English Civil War. And that doesn't mean he went mad. Uh, we often talk about losing one's head as going mad. Uh, certainly where I come from, we do. Uh, but he literally had his head chopped off uh, because uh, of uh, his, the kind of king uh, that he was. And in the midst of all of that and the issues with the church and the state, uh, the uh, parliament uh, said that we want 
an assembly to set up a confession for the churches to follow in opposition to the Anglican system, in opposition to Catholicism. They wanted a Reformed Protestant confession of faith, and that is held by many Presbyterian churches today, currently in the world. And so, these creeds and confessions were used to set forth what is believed, and it's still the same today. And may we see the value of them, but may we always keep Scripture above them as well to follow the Word of God, uh, because the Word of God is our final rule of faith and practice, not a confession, not a creed, but the Word of God. And the creeds are beneficial in as much as they are agreeable to Scripture. And so we'll come back to this next week and move on a little bit. And may God bless this to us, and may we rejoice in the rich history we have in creeds and confessions. And coming into Nicaea, we'll see something of the benefit of that as well. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy truth. We thank Thee that as a Reformed and as a confessional church, we can reflect upon the blessings of creeds and confessions. And we thank Thee that men, godly men, have been raised up by Thee to set forth the truth of Scripture. And we pray that we would not, like many, despise these great historical and biblical documents, but we would hold fast to the Word of God, but hold fast to what these things teach inasmuch as they are agreeable to Scripture. Father, may Scripture be the final rule of faith and practice in all of our lives. And we look at the heresies of the church, and we're coming shortly to consider the heresies of the church. And Father, may we keep firm upon Thy Word so that we would not fall into heresy ourselves. We would not have beliefs and practices that go against Thy Word. Father, keep us closely aligned with Scripture. Teach us by Thy Spirit to hold fast. And Father, we pray Thou would bless us. Bless us now as we part and prepare for the morning service. Come and draw graciously near to us, we pray. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.